Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Joanna Robinson, you are a fan of books. Am I right about that? I sure am. I do know how to read. You do know how to read. And uh, I think a lot of our listeners out there would also enjoy the practice of reading as well. Uh, well, you guys are in luck. The sponsor for this week's episode is Arjuna Books, which is proud to present uh, two works to you today, Mink Eyes and Tenebrae by Max McBride. I'm just going to read a little bit from the plot summary of Mink Eyes here. It's October of 1986, and private detective Peter O'Keefe, physically scarred and emotionally battered Vietnam vet, is hired by his childhood best friend to investigate what appears on the surface to be merely a rinky-dink mink farm Ponzi scam. Uh, Say that five times fast. But instead, O'Keefe finds himself snared in a vicious web of money laundering, cocaine smuggling, and murder. Uh, So that's from the plot summary of Mink Eyes. And Max McBride, the author of Mink Eyes, is uh, is a double threat in the literary world because on offer we have, you know, this noir, Mink Eyes, but then also a volume of poetry called Tenebrae, which uh, you don't find a lot of poets who write novels or vice versa. But that is the upshot of this volume of poetry because it's sort of being touted as poetry for people who don't usually like poetry. The prose is very plain. It's very direct and to the heart. And so sort of if you have like a block around poetry, you think it's too flowery or remote, you can't really get into it. Tenebrae by Max McBride is the antithesis of that. It's just really direct, emotional, honest verse and that is also available. So, I mean, a, a lot of you out there are thinking to yourself, I can't commit to buying a book. Well, fortunately, you have a chance to read a sample uh, and then order both of these. You can read a sample on Amazon and order Mink Eyes and Tenebrae from your local bookstore or on Amazon. You can join the Max to the Max community at maxtothemax.com. That's M-A-X, the numeral 2, T-H-E-M-A-X.com. Read, comment, and comment again. And thanks to Arjuna Books and Max McBride for sponsoring us this week. They really don't want us talking to each other, do they? Maybe they're trying to steer you towards a sure thing. Maybe I miss taking my chances. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, a recap podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. Welcome to the show. What we do here on this podcast is we dive in-depth into every single episode of Westworld. Uh, but we don't spoil anything from future episodes that includes anything we might know or anything you might see on the next time on Preview. Uh, we only speculate and theorize about stuff that HBO shows us in this episode. And this week, we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 3, Virtue e Fortuna. My Latin is very terrible. So, Joanna, are you? How would you pronounce that? Vertu e fortuna. Yeah, that sounds a lot better I, than me. I so, think it's. I think it's Italian. Hmm, okay, um, my French is awful, so I wouldn't. <laughs> Uh, anyway, you can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us 
at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And we are uh, in, in the part of the season right now that I would describe as full-on theorizing. I mean, I think every day at decodingwestworld at gmail.com, we probably get a dozen theories at least. Uh, am I right about that? Is, is that your feeling as well, Joanna? I feel like everyone's just throwing in the theories these days. It's really fun. There's like screen grabs and bullet points and all sorts of stuff from you guys. So Indeed, thank you. Yeah. You can always keep them coming into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And we'll have a little theory corner later on in the episode to discuss some of the biggest theories. In the meantime, wanted to highlight uh, one email up top and then highlight a few emails throughout the course of the show. This email comes in from uh, Ira. Ira writes in, uh, I enjoy your interpretations of the show, but I found myself at odds with what seemed like a bit of groupthink or more accurately doublethink regarding Joanna's strong position that Dolores in cold-blooded Messiah mode was boring. Oh, yeah, I remember this email. <laughs> <laughs> I think Evan Rachel Wood's performance is the deepest and most nuanced of all the fine cast members, particularly now with Hopkins gone. The fineness of her facial expressions and eye movements, even when in what you might find as a less interesting character development, um, even in what you might, may find as a less interesting character development, to me is captivating. And why should Dolores not be cruel in the application of her power, given what she has experienced at the hands of Delos and the guests for all of her existence? I say double think because David put a bit of a comment in about not feeling as strongly about the boredom of this phase of Dolores, but seemed to walk it back in the forcefulness of Joanna's perspective. Um, so anyway, that, that email comes from, from Ira. And by the way, the, the, <laughs> that phrasing, uh, David puts out a comment and seems to walk it back in the forcefulness of Joanna's perspective. Get used to that, because I think that's going to happen more often this season. <laughs> well, Especially considering I, how correct Joanna was last season. But anyway. Yeah, but that, I mean, that applies to theories. I don't ever want you, Dave, to feel like I'm bullying you out of a, an opinion <laughs> about um, a, an actor's performance. And hopefully that wasn't the case. Uh, hopefully I wasn't like the Dolores to your Teddy or something like that. But um, Well, I think, I think Dolores, uh, I, I think she is doing a comp. Uh, I think Evan Rachel Wood is doing a competent job at, at playing what the showrunners want her to play. But that Absolutely. what what they're asking her to play at least until this week's episode was not particularly interesting, right? Right, and I wanted to say that that discussion we had was for episodes one and two, and um, I think that there are things she gets to do in this episode that show off even more of her range and even more of her nuance, and I I like that. And I mean, I think I said last week that I like the flashback stuff too. It's really the Wyatt <laughs> part of her personality that I'm having trouble with. Um, and so the more she fluctuates and flitters between two things as she did in one scene this week where she just really fluctuates back and forth, uh, the more compelling I find it. And yeah, of course, I'm, I, Evan Rachel Wood is brilliant. This is never, ever a ding on her at all. Yeah, yeah she is really marvelous. So anyway, uh, we'll talk more about that in our recap of this week's episode. Uh, okay, well, let's, uh, let's dive into the episode then, Joanna. Uh, this week, season uh, two, episode three is directed by Richard Lewis, written by Robert Patino, Jonathan Nolan, and Lisa Joy. Uh, Richard Lewis, a very uh, well-regarded uh, director of television shows. He's worked on things like CSI before. Um, so knows his stuff. He's been around the block a little bit. Not a name that I'm used to in uh, HBO Prestige Television. But, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about whether he pulled this off in, in this week's episode. So, uh, all right. By the way, before we begin, did you want to comment on the the title of the episode? Um, just that it's a it's a Machiavellian concept about the two things that uh, it takes, or two of the things it takes to succeed, 
virtue not being like a morality virtue, but strength, power, prowess, control, and fortuna not being like, um, oh, being, well, luck, chance, fate, um, the things you can't control. So it's a combination of the things you can control, the way in which you can bend reality to your purpose, and the things you can't control. Um, and that's that's sort of the the path towards success is one of Machiavelli's arguments. And the prince, we can sort of discuss who we think is doing the virtue and who's doing the fortuna or whatever in this episode, but that's a concept. The episode begins in uh, a a park that has now been called uh, the Raj. Otherwise, it's also been referred to as Raj World, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen online. Um, and it's theoretically 1930s-esque uh, colonial India. We meet two characters, uh, Nicholas and Grace, both of whom are theoretically guests in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and they share some really... Uh, uh, nice banter with each other before uh, having sex in one of their rooms. But before they have sex, um, Grace needs to know that Nicholas is not a host. And she does this uh, by taking a gun and firing it at him. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I want to talk about the mechanics of the gun and all that stuff, but uh, I know you are very delighted by this uh, opening scene. So what were your th- overall thoughts on this? Oh, I was. Um, I don't know. I just got really excited because I think um, – we we were all, we have all been bracing ourselves for Shogun World, but uh, the idea the Raj other than the hint of the Bengal tiger washing up on shore the the idea of the Raj uh, as a world was not talked about in the press be- before the season premiered and so it was just a nice surprise oh here's this whole other world that nobody has talked about that mm. uh, we get plunged into I just like it kicks off with Ramin Javadi I presume uh, doing like an Indian-esque uh, orchestration of the White Stripes Seven Nation Army. And that's just really fun when we've heard the player piano cover all these pop songs to right. hear like a, a sitar doing the White Stripes. Yeah. Um, and I just, I really liked the Grace character a lot um, with, you know, just this context. You're immediately like, like when this whole section ends and we'll talk a little bit more about it, but when a whole thing ends, my instinct, and I think a few other people's, was like, oh, God, I hope she comes. I, I assume she's going to come back. I hope she comes back. And then, she, you know, by episode's end, we have the answer to that. But uh, I even got tweets from people watching, like, oh, my God, is that the last we see of her? I liked her so much. Is this just a random cold open? Um, but no. And so, yeah, I, I liked all of that. And I think the gun stuff, the, mo- the more I watched it and the more I thought about it, the more I really admired the very tidy storytelling it's doing which not only establishes, as far as I'm concerned, that these are two human guests, um, but it also establishes that when she shoots him with the gun, that's happening before the like parkwide rebellion. Right. And when he gets shot, like just a few minutes later in uh, near the tent, that's mid rebellion. So we know the time. For me, it anchors it in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard, do you want to hear like the, the theory that I've heard the most on Twitter and email about how that might be wrong? Bring it on. I disagree with this theory, but I understand why it exists. Um, a lot of people think we're getting like a, t- another timeline misdirect and, um, and that Katya Herber is the actor who's playing, um, Grace, Grace is actually like a younger version of Teresa 
the character we met last season. Now, Teresa is played by Danish actress Sidsa Baba Knudsen. Katja Herbers is from the Netherlands. They both have this very, like, faint, you know, lovely, plummy uh, European accent. And I think some people sort of remarked on the way that she holds her cigarette, the way she sits, all that sort of stuff. I do, I do not think that's the case. I think we are very clearly anchored in a time where the tiger then washes up on the shore of Westworld. And that's what we saw in episode one. Um, but I understand based on like, if you're accent hunting and you're like, huh, who kind of sounds like Katya Herber is like, since about Newton, like kind of does, even though they're from different countries. So that's a theory. I don't agree with it, but I just wanted to put it out there. Well, so. what do you think of the theory that I have heard that Grace uh, is actually William's daughter? Uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess there are a couple of uh, – wh- what is the basis of the idea that Grace might be William's daughter? Um, she seems like extremely um, – she she has his same attitude towards the host <laughs> that William does. Um, in her notebook, you see that she has uh, – like you, you see her open her notebook at one point, and it's like two interlocking hexagons that form a third hexagon in the middle, mm-hmm. which yeah. is a logo that we see elsewhere uh, in the park. Um, I think you see it when they first go down into that creepy lair with the uh, with the hosts that don't have like human characteristics. Uh, you see it on the screen that uh, Charlotte Hale pulls up, mm-hmm. uh, and also you see it on Bernard's yeah. tablet at some point. Mm-hmm. So the idea is like maybe she could be. Uh, related like very important to delos in a big way like we don't know what that double hexagon sign means yeah as far as i understand i think Um, the logo is definitely the most intriguing thing about her you're right we see it uh basically anywhere you see that like top secret delos project mm -hmm. that uh which is the tablet stuff or the charlotte underground lair that's what those interlocking hexagons are about uh so i think that that is definitely the most intriguing thing about her for sure yeah um but you point out that she does have an accent, so maybe she was raised in a different place than William was, right? Uh, if for that theory to be correct, I, I don't know that I believe that theory, but it does, it does strike me as very intriguing and very of a piece with what the show has pulled in the past. You know what I mean? Um, and we also know for a fact that William does have a daughter. Right? We see that in flashbacks. Isn't that correct? They have they have been sort of laying. I mean, we heard about her last season. I remember last season when when he talked about her a couple times. Yes. And then Charlotte showed up, and I was like, maybe Charlotte's his daughter, and that's mm. why someone so young is on the board and stuff like that. Uh, and then that turned out not to be the case. So, like, I definitely have in the past been wondering if you would see an adult Emily in the park. Right. Um, and theoretically calls herself something different or maybe grace is her middle name maybe could yeah. be uh we'll see so okay a, a lot to talk about with regards to this scene want to read a couple emails um one email comes in from chris from london who writes in as a british person reacting to seeing the raj park he says quote No one of my generation would fantasize about going back to colonial supremacy. We are so seeped in colonial disasters like Zulu, Khartoum, Kabul, etc. We'd be expecting some sort of bloodthirsty uprising at any moment. I have to say that as well as a London resident, it would just be deeply weird. I know and work with so many good Indians and British Indians. Fantasizing about enslaving them is comical. Westworld guests are likely to be the 1%. However, what they are thinking is anyone's guest. 
Uh, Westworld's generation might be a few on uh, on from us as well. What will 30 years of Brexit do, I wonder? Um, and then uh, Chris also continues to, to speculate, like, is this the only park where hosts and guests are split based on race and nationality? Are they warning us ahead that there might be a park based on Southern Plantation? Um, and he also notes that there, like, there is an Indian mutiny that happened. Uh, he links to this Wikipedia page about the Indian Rebellion of 1857. I doubt the host murder spree or anything like that happened uh, in any other park's history scenarios. But in the Raj, anyone with a vague grasp of history must be aware that it happened once and it could happen again. The Raj itself is a creation of this Victorian Holocaust and its aftermath. There may even be an incredibly bloodthirsty storyline based on the Indian mutiny in the Raj Park, which simulates exactly what the Indian hosts have now done for real. Um, so that was a perspective from Chris from London, writing into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. You know, uh, Joan, I also wanted to point out the comments from Addie Robertson, uh, who tweets at the Dextriarchy uh, on Twitter. She writes for The Verge, uh, senior reporter for The Verge is on her Twitter profile. Uh, and she writes here, I, I thought this was a very incisive Twitter thread, uh, quote, now we've got people chilling in Raj World. Westworld continues to be a weird case study in future rich people video games being far more overtly socially regressive than actual video games. Westworld sort of inadvertently highlights how much real video games use steampunk and fantasy to detoxify historical settings. Because mm. Delos spends so much time affectionately preserving all the terrible bigotry of those settings, end quote. Uh, so I just thought that was an interesting observation that like Westworld, like somehow in this future world, Video games or role playing have gotten more socially regressive than uh, than they are even today, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah, and I think that's something really interesting that Westworld is doing. I was t- uh, for you know, spoiler alert for a future interview that I have going up on VF, but I I talked to Simon Gordon, the actor who plays Lee Sizemore, sort of about this idea of um, the way in which Westworld definitely last season and then certainly uh, even more so with like the Raj and we know that Shogun world is something that they're, you know, going to explore this season um, is really leaning into these concepts of worlds where women or racial minorities can be like extremely subjugated. And that's not to say that every single host we see or guest we see is a, is a white person. They're not, you know, like, and, Charlotte Hale, one of the execs on Delos, is not a white person, obviously, but um, the 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 Raj world or the Raj really does underline something we already knew in Westworld, which is like if you want to fantasize about the time when you could be the most powerful person in a given world, like this is what we're here to provide for you, mm-hmm. um, for in a number of ways. And Westworld, I think, blurred the lines a little bit on that because you have characters like Maeve, you know, like you have it's not just like uh Maeve being in a position of power in Westworld, whether um that feels historically accurate or not. Um, I think it probably is to a certain degree, but that felt like not so much of a racial line that they were drawing. But if you get to the Raj and it's like, we only saw white guests and we only saw like these Brown hosts serving them. That does add an extra Like who wants to go to the Raj? That's so creepy. So creepy. (laughs) Um, it really is. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It it struck me as 
very in keeping with the universe that Westworld has created, which is that uh, in the future, the one percent, yeah, will pay exorbitant amounts of money to uh, live out their wildest fantasies in these incredibly socially regressive, <laughs> socially regressive parks. Uh, I, I remember hearing Eli Roth talking about uh, what inspired him to make the film Hostel. Have you seen that movie, the horror film Hostel? No. Uh, well, it's basically about like they. Uh, these people kidnap Americans and then like rich people pay money to torture them to death. And Eli Roth said he was inspired to make that film because he had heard of uh, this this thing in Vietnam, I think he said. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But basically he had heard of this uh, situation where you could pay someone $10,000 to go in a room and shoot someone in the head. And uh, that's really messed up. It's like kind of apocryphal. But it's also like, yeah, if, if people have these kind of – extremely troubling fantasies today so uh i don't feel like the raj is that much more of a stretch but it it is disturbing to think about the implications speaking of the implications uh let's talk a little bit about the guns right so i think i just uh, sorry i just want to say one more thing about the notebook which you know she's like very carefully guarding from the nicholas character we see her um what i think i rewatched the opening like a few times and what it looks like to me is that Someone comes down and sits to sits at the table, like while Nicholas is watching her from afar, comes down, sits and talks to her and she's listening to him and writing things down in her notebook. And so I couldn't tell. I mean, that person's not someone we've seen before. I, you can't tell from afar if that's a host or another guest. Who knows? Um, but like whatever it was, it seemed to me like she was on a fact finding mission at, at that time. And then when Nicholas shows up, she wants to keep that book hidden from him, if at all possible. So. Mm-hmm. So the guns caused a lot of confusion. And I have to admit, I was a little bit confused as well. Uh, And I think I actually really remember how the guns worked from Westworld the movie, actually. Uh, I know they laid it out in this show as well. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was more vividly laid out in the film, which is that uh, the guns – if you're a host uh, and you have a gun, you you cannot hurt other hosts, right, is how it works. Yeah, Um, uh James Brolin's character says the gun has a sensing device. It won't fire at anything with a high body temperature, only something cold like a machine. But I, right. I don't think that's true for the TV show because uh, people have sex with the host. I think we decided <laughs> that the, the hosts are also body temperature yes. for some reason. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess the idea is that uh, the guns will somehow be able to tell if you're a host or uh, a human, right? So... I think this is a little confusing, John. Like, how do you think of this? Because I guess the idea is that the guns don't kill humans, but then the guns can also somehow be deprogrammed to hurt humans, right? That there's a there's an additional layer of programming or failsafe that has somehow failed. Yeah, um, there's this whole complicated thing that Nolan talked about at this like TCA panel where he called them simunitions. Mm-hmm. AK non-lethal training ammunition. So there's like a bit of an impact and it like hurts like a paintball would, but it's not an actual bullet, but it doesn't seem to me like the guns are, ch- have been changed out or the ammunition has been changed out. Right. Uh, it seems like they're still a- using the host, the rebellious hosts are still using simunitions. Right. Right. And, and like there was this big deal last season with Dolores getting that other gun and it seemed like that other gun was like that you could use that, that gun had real ammunition right. so she could use it to kill Ford if she needed to. But it does seems to be like, 
I think, a tiny bit of a retcon yep. uh, in this season that they're like, oh, all of a sudden the guns work on the guests, on the humans, because, yeah, they the bullets have been reprogrammed to you know penetrate them the same way they would a robot. It's just, um, it's just weird that they would draw attention to that. You know what I mean? I, I just – it's fine if you want the guns to – like, first they, they – um, like – in season one, it was all about whether the host could use these guns to shoot humans, right? Like whether they could use these deadly weapons to shoot humans. And and I guess even William got shot bef- uh, or was hurt. Did William ever get shot and did that hurt him? He, he, he no, young shot. William? Young no. William got sh- – no? Not no. Yet. Yeah. No, that's why that's why that like smile that Ed Harris gives at the end of season one is so compelling because he gets shot in the arm and he's like, holy shit, the bullets work. Uh, James Miller in our chat room because we're doing like this live broadcast says they mentioned the bullet sensors being disabled as part of the situation report right after the credits. So mm. whatever the bullet sensors are <laughs> and I don't know what those are in each individual gun, perhaps, or in each individual bullet, perhaps. Yeah, uh, it has been disabled as part of Ford's like sowing chaos plan. Um, but that's still that seems like that means that every single bullet has some sort of chip in it which is like i guess not not the end of the world yeah not so crazy i mean this movie in this show that has <laughs> robots that look and sound and act exactly right. like humans um right. the idea that every bullet would have some built-in sensor uh that knows whether to break skin is not super far-fetched i guess anyway no. uh but it, it does just add kind of another layer into the world that you need to understand to really fully grasp the scene so in any case uh, they realize that like there's a tent full of dead people, and then like they're in danger. Nicholas gets shot, uh, I think fatally from my perspective. Um, and then Grace kills the host using you know shotgun shells at the last second. A tiger pursues her. They run out of the parks. Uh, what is it called? The um, it's like the, the perimeter. P- the perimeter. Or the, the the announcement said like you're exiting the parks like playable area or something like that. It, mm-hmm. it was some kind of announcement that that went on the loudspeaker, and um, as the uh, credits begin, she basically gets attacked by this tiger and uh, presumably falls into the water, and then she resurfaces at the end of the episode, uh, seemingly in Westworld, where Ghost Nation finds her. So this Ghost Nation finding her and, and resurfacing, uh, we we basically conclude that this is the past and that that's how the Bengal tiger got there in episode one, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's taking place concurrently with like basically Ford gets shot in the span of when we meet Grace to when Grace goes over into the reservoir. Right. Yep. So that's where it pins it in time as far as I'm concerned. So In the present day, we see Charlotte and Bernard. Um, we see them uh, heading towards... Uh, the Westworld Control Center. It's this gorgeous shot where you see, you know, the, this massive vista, and you see kind of the control center at the top of this mesa, um, and yeah, they're kind of approaching. And Charlotte finds Bernard and says, "Bernard, you made it out alive. I didn't think you had it in you," she says to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know that something terrible happened, and I, I'm not sure if we find out exactly what at the end of this episode. Maybe we do. Uh, Charlotte asks Strand if he brought her what she was looking for um, and Charlotte asks Bernard if uh, he knows where uh, Peter Abernathy is. Uh, presumably she's just looking for Abernathy at this point, right? Like that's the primary thing she's asking. Yeah, about, she, right? you know, she mentions that he's not, I think she mentions that he's not in the Mesa. She's like, he keeps slipping our grasp. She seems so suspicious of Bernard that I feel like uh, since the last time we saw them, 
uh, and we'll see them again together in this episode in the past. But since the last time we saw them, she has cottoned on to the idea that he's not human. That's what I that that's how I'm choosing to interpret the way that she's like looking at him and saying, uh, Bernard, you made it alive. I didn't think you had it in you. Like she looks so suspicious of him. And she also like implies that he has been responsible for Abernathy slipping her grasp a couple times. Mm. So, well, I think also that like in this episode, we see we see this flashback where Charlotte first stumbles upon the Westworld or Delos uh, security team or QA or whatever. And they check her spine to make sure she's a human. So yeah. it, it just is weird that at no point in the last two weeks did they che- anyone check Bernard. I mean, you see him wash up on the beach and Stubbs, the most useless security guard ever, stops them and says, y- are you really going to kill the boss? You know, um, But it just seems weird that they wouldn't check him to make sure he's a host. Uh, and maybe at some point they have checked him. Maybe people know that he's a host. You know, who knows? Uh, well, so we see Charlotte and Bernard sort of get separated in this episode, right? In the mm-hmm. past. Yep. And it's possible that Bernard was never again in front of Delos right. people. It's possible, yeah. Uh, and so then they've only had him for a couple of hours or a day, whatever it is, since he washed up on the beach. Right. It is crazy that no one scanned his spine. Yeah. Though maybe that whole like – Stub saying something and the playing cards was like, that's check enough. We don't need to check his spine. Yeah. Um, but it still does seem like a precaution that they would take. There was a theory that someone ma- mailed into me where they think this whole thing happening on the beach uh, is some sort of staged thing um, where everyone knows that Bernard is a host. Like the, the security officer... Maling or Maling played by Betty Gabriel certainly looks consistently suspicious of Bernard. I think that's right. true. The, yeah, but there, I, was a, there was a theory that like those playing cards actually indicate who is a host versus yeah, I don't who, know. Yeah, yeah, but I don't agree with that. But I think I, I don't think that like Stubbs or Strand um, or the tech whose name I can't remember. I don't think that they think Bernard is a host. But I think. Um, this this modeling character has her suspicions, and I think Charlotte definitely thinks he's a host. It could be wrong, and it could all just be like one giant ruse for Bernard's benefit to try to get him to say something. I don't know. I don't know why they would do that. Mm. But, like, I don't really understand the in order to what right. part of that theory. You know yeah. what I mean? But, I do know what you mean, yep. Uh, well, anyway, we flash back to two weeks ago. And this is when Charlotte and Bernard, uh, presumably they, they have like just exited that creepy lair they were in, right? I think yeah. that's when we, we get to them. And mm-hmm. uh, Bernard has a record of Peter Abernathy on his tablet and he's looking for him. Um, and they spy on Fort Forlorn Hope. Um, and they see, you know, that uh, Rebus has taken a bunch of them hostage um, and treating Abernathy like he's a guest. He's tying up Abernathy, uh, perhaps because of his clothing, perhaps because Abernathy is acting like uh, kind of a guest, perhaps. Anyway. Um, someone someone uh, pointed out to me that um, Abernathy has probably been coded to read as a human because that's because like last season, Charlotte and Sizemore had to smuggle him out of the park. And so like, right, they were trying to get him on the train out of the park. So they put all that info in his head and in order to get someone out of the park, they need to read as human because the hosts have like C4 in their spines. Right. Um, and so if they, if they leave the park, uh, they get uh, exploded. <laughs> 
if if that if that spine makes it out of the park, they just blow up. That's a, that's the like lysine contingency sort of failsafe of this of this world. Nice. And so, nice um, thank you. So. So Abernathy has been recoded, like had maybe like had that removed from his, like Maeve had that removed from her spine. Yeah, but they made it, the thing is they made a really big deal about that. You know, like I know. They showed her being recast, like her uh, skeleton being recast and everything. I know. And they didn't really do that with Abernathy last season. But yeah. I'm just saying like they had to have some reason why he was going to be able to get out of the park without the C4 detonating in his spine. Yeah. Um, and, and then that's also an obstacle for all the other pot potentially another obstacle for all the other hosts in the park, uh, including Dolores is like, how do you get out of the park? If you've got that C4 on your spine, um, some people in our chat room here and elsewhere are saying that, um, maybe that's been disabled for everyone, like with the bullet sensors and everything and the mesh network and all that sort of stuff. Maybe the C4 has been deactivated as well. The explosive but we, spines have been decided. Yeah, yeah. But we don't know. So, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, it feels like a pretty bad failsafe if uh, you can just deactivate it. I feel like that kind of defeats the purpose of a failsafe. Uh, but anyway, uh, there is this tension with whether or not all these uh, guests are going to be given over to the Confederados, I think. Right. Um, and Bernard ca- captures Rebus, reprograms him uh, or hard ports in. Uh, to give him an attitude adjustment as the most virtuous, quickest gun in the West. And he, uh, in a fairly effective sequence, then kills all the people that, that are going to try to take these hosts hostage again. Um, so unties everyone. Yeah. Abernathy says he needs to get to the train. Um, and then they are captured uh, by the Confederados, Abernathy and Bernard, before, uh, or right as Charlotte Hale is getting away on a horse. Just ditches them. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's important. Like we learned the hard porting in, um, which he, I guess, kind of did with that host in the, in the lair, as you keep calling it. I like you calling it the lair. Um, that lair scene, like he sort of hard ported in. This, this sort of like concept of hard porting in in the field feels kind of like new and like a, I don't know, a way to um, wave away maybe some things that they can do out in the field. Um, it's also sad to see Rebus get his reprogramming here because if you remember back in episode one, uh, when he gets shot and killed on the beach, which he does in the modern storyline, it's because he came to the defense of a woman on the beach. He's That's like, right. shoot a woman, not on my watch, and they shoot him. So they they reprogrammed his personality, and that's what got him killed mm. on the beach later on. So, well, I uh, think he would have been killed no matter what, you know? Prob- uh, uh, possibly. Because I think they were just executing hosts straight up in that first scene, if I recall correctly. Um, sure, but they, like... It, it did seem out of character when he did that on the beach. Right. And so, like, now we know why he did something like yeah, that. Yeah, kind of know? hilarious callback, actually. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Anything else about this sequence um, that we want to mention? I think it was a really, really effective. Sometimes, though, when the show introduces things like hard porting in, as you mentioned, Joanna, I sometimes I get the feeling that the show is writing checks it can't cash. And what I mean by that is it's introducing these concepts left and right. Mind eggs, hard porting in, these freaking um, hosts that have no body parts on them. You know, and I wonder, are, are these going to pay off? Or, or, or you know, this, this wireless mesh network, is the existence of this new concept going to invalidate or um, make more confusing previous things that have happened on the show? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, like... Uh, you know, I, are, are I we going to ask the question like, should, why didn't he hard port in at that point in time? You know what I'm saying? 
Um, I think to to the contrary, it is okay. So here's what I, I think. I think occasionally they introduce these new technological things they can do that we haven't seen before in order to like get away with something they want to do in the future. Mm-hmm. And it does maybe make wa- rewatching season one where you're like, why did they hardport in? Uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, I, yeah. I think there are a few like gentle retcons, but I don't doubt that like hardporting in is going to be important going forward. And I don't doubt that like the mind eggs, uh, which by the way, we should say, um, someone, <laughs> Someone wrote in, someone with knowledge of this wrote in to us and let us know that, um, I won't blow their cover, but let us know. I don't know if I said this already on the podcast, but let us know that the, uh, those mind eggs are called internally on the HBO, uh, production side chestnuts, mm. um, which is fun because I don't know if you remember, Dave, we had this whole conversation about the, what the word chestnut means, uh, last season. Cause it was the name of one of the episodes. And I kept trying to like explain the phrase that old chestnut, which just means like that old, that old thing you've heard over and over again. We never really fully got, uh, a, a great reason why the word chestnut was used as an episode title last season. I feel like we never really fully landed on it. Mm. Um, but knowing that these, uh, mind eggs as we like to call them, uh, are called chestnuts according to, uh, HBO production. Uh, I don't know. Fun tidbit. Yeah. Yeah. And we will see if you are correct or not about the hard porting in coming back as a concept. Uh, I look forward to learning more. Well, doesn't, doesn't Bernard Hardport into Abernathy like later in this episode? Okay. I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> but will it be anything beyond this episode, John? That's, that's okay. Anyway, uh, before we move on, we have to thank all the people who contributed uh, some cash so that we could do the show for you guys. Uh, a, a few hundred people contributed to the Kickstarter for Decoding Westworld so that tens of thousands could listen to us theorize about uh, what's happening in this show. And we want to thank some of them right now. Margot Wigley... Mike Aparicio, a longtime contributor to our works, and we really appreciate that. Chris of House Turner, Scott Moore, Sabina Syed, Mike Cordero, David Toole, the E is silent in Toole, Brian Clement, Benjamin Jacoby, Jonathan Carpenter, Sean Hillary, Raymond Terry, Tom Tiberius Neal, and Warpstone. Thank you so much for your contributions to our Kickstarter. Joanna, I think you have some people to thank too, right? I do. Before we get into my names... Uh, what can you? What do you think a hard you mean? <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's a like. Uh, uh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, okay. I want to thank Matt Gray, Robert Lassen. Whoa, 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 whoa! Uh, I don't know if you read that correctly. Sorry, Matt Gray. Is that better? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> slight pause. Slight pause in the middle. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, Robert Lassen, Adam Seal, Andrew Self, uh, Henry Berthelsen, Tapio Leopold, Matthew Saluto, Satulo, sorry, Jessica Pippin, Eileen Russholt, Sonia Grossman, Dillis, Joe Jenka, Jason Hobson, Chris Farmer, uh, Ryan Pahalis, and Christopher <laughs> <it>. Earnshaw. <laughs> Ryan Bullis and Christopher Earnshaw there at the Christopher end. Earnshaw, if, yeah. I, if I laughed over that. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you all so much. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you guys are awesome. It's because of you that we get to do the show. So, uh, all right. A couple of other storylines we got to talk about. And that's Dolores. We see Dolores riding into the encampment to see Colonel Brigham. 
uh, and they have this big kind of confrontation out front. Uh, Clementine uh, comes out. That was a shock because I, I thought the last time we saw Clementine, like her mind had been emptied out or something like that. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. No, last time we saw her, she, I believe, though I could be wrong, that she was on the tree line shooting at young William. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, but I mean, older William, Ed Harris, yeah. But I mean, um, was that in season one? Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. So season one at the end, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess she awakened after that confrontation that she had with Bernard in the uh, and Ford in the underground room. I don't know. She still strikes me as pretty spacey in this yeah. episode. I, I think really, she's, she's, yeah, go ahead. I liked the uh, Clementine dragging dudes effect, you know, yeah. it's because uh, she uh, seems like a tall, skinny person and she's dragging a dude that's probably like a couple hundred pounds and it, it it takes work to make that look uh, realistic and effortless, and I think they did a good job of that. It's kind of a very subtle effect, but I, I thought it landed really well. Anyway, yeah, they, yeah. they did that last season, right? With when Dolores dragged Ed Harris, like Evan Rachel Wood dragged Ed Harris through the church, and it was like a really cool shot. I really liked it. Um, this one, I was I was stare. I replayed the Bernard thing at the end of the episode because he's like on dirt. And I'm like, how are how exactly are they doing this? Like, yeah. have, I guess you must have a harness. I was looking for like wheels. There are no right. wheels. Like it was. Yeah, it's a, you're right. It's a good subtle effect. It it's really a, works. Yeah, it's a subtle, and you wouldn't even like it, it. Doesn't draw attention to itself. Like unless you're thinking about it, it's not something you would probably even notice. But uh, great effect. And she kind of says, "Hey, I need your men help." Uh, Dolores says, "I need your men's help." Uh, to Colonel Brigham, she shows him this weapon, this modern uh, uh, machine gun. Uh, or submachine gun, I think is technically the term, mm. and uh, convinces him to let her in and defend themselves against uh, Delos QA, who are going to come attack them. Yeah, and um, you know this this was like you mentioned last week. You sort of thought her looking down at Fort Forlorn Hope was like she's going to get the weapon in there. I don't. I think this episode sort of confirms that that's not the case. That she was going down there to get just like men bodies mm-hmm. right rub it in why don't you Joanna? no i okay <laughs> but um but it's also I, I had some questions from people uh confused about like you've got the confederados and then you've got these other people wearing like black masks and black bandanas and stuff like that and who are they and these are people who are like that these that's dolores's crew um, we saw them earlier with Angela. We saw, we saw like one of them sort of last season, but this, but you, I feel like you can tell a Dolores henchman by, you shall know us by the weird black bandanas we wear on our face. So that's, they look like the black block to me, to be honest. But, um, that's, that's the distinction you can make in this, in this fight. I think some people were just confused, but those people have been around like with Angela and, um, there are, you know, someone in the chat mentioned, and I should, I should have said this when we talked about Clementine, like, if you remember last season, there were all these people in cold storage with Abernathy. And then when Sizemore went down to get them, they were all gone. And then we later saw some of them, including Clementine, uh, in the tree line, sort of shooting at Ed Harris's character, old William. And so the idea is like, these are people who have been like awoken and released from cold storage. For some reason, a lot of them like to wear black cloth on their face now. That's just what we do in the new world. <laughs> yeah, a little confusing though, because and you also saw her revive a bunch of dead people last week, right? Uh, but none of them seemed to be dressed this way. So it was, yeah, it was kind of a weird transition there. But uh, anyway, 
She she goes in and uh, is able to convince them to join her side. Uh, and so what happens after this is you see Bernard and Abernathy join up with them at Fort Forlorn Hope. And it's kind of this crazy – it reminds me of like when we were watching Game of Thrones and characters who hadn't met in a long time met again. And it's like mm-hmm. how powerful and emotional that was. That's certainly the case here as well. Um, a confederado goes for Dolores. Teddy puts him down, uh, and he unties Abernathy. Um, Abernathy is in really bad shape. Um, yeah. And, but Teddy doesn't remember Abernathy, but Dolores does, uh, and she explains that you know he's my father uh, and my home. Uh, and Abernathy's all freaking out. You know, he's his programming is all messed up. He's quoting King Lear, which is presumably. Uh, an older version of his programming, right? Like an older character that he used to play. Abernathy quotes from King Lear here, uh, I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Uh, and it's, you know, th- th- this guy who played Abernathy, he's amazing in this role and continue, like they, they give him a lot of great material here. But I, I think the thing that's most interesting about this scene, right, is how compassionate Dolores is um, still treating him like her father, even though she knows that it's all programmed BS. I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. It's all right. I'm here. Dolores? Dolores, the calves in the field, I'm worried. There's blue tone spreading all through these parts. It's all right, Daddy. I'll lead him home. Back to the ranch. Do you remember our ranch? The way you'd welcome every morning out on the porch. wake up in my own bed climb down the stairs find you there and you'd say you had an out to set down some of this natural splendor like I, I kind of have been pondering what this show is trying to say about the fact that these characters Maeve and Dolores have these extremely strong attachments to these people that they've been programmed to love Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wonder if it's saying something like there's there's something immutable about love that like e- even though it's an invent e- like it's invented and implanted in these hosts that like that love is so powerful that it transcends any other kind of programming. Which, by the way, is a similar theme to uh, Interstellar. Interstellar, right? Which is <laughs> yeah. another uh, Nolan brother Nolan, work. Nolan so, joint. Nolan yeah. joint. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I did think it's interesting that, yeah, this, this idea of the immutability of love is playing out here. Uh, what did you think of this whole sequence? Um, I'm delighted that you brought up Interstellar, 
when talking about love. Um, I'm just going to read that that section that it's Anne Hathaway's read monologue it. from Interstellar. Perform she says, it. <laughs> I can't. Oh, I cannot do justice to Anne Hathaway because like my chin doesn't quiver half so well. Oscar but she says, award winner <laughs> Anne Hathaway performed the following monologue <laughs> that Joanna's going to try to live up to. Love isn't something that we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. Love is the one thing that we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. And here's where I add, and robotics. Um, Anyway, yeah. this this That's me me clapping in the background. (laughs) Bravo. And scene. Um, (laughs) But yeah, this concept that I think the Nolans are quite fascinating. You know, I I think um, this idea of love and connection is um, evident in a lot of their pieces. Um, It's a really bold statement. It's saying like love is valid even if it's like completely fabricated, right? Like even though it's like programmed in by some engineer or, you know, playwright or Sizemore-esque character – that it is potent and and kind of worth pursuing is the way the show frames it, right? Yeah, and I just I like that idea of the transcendence of love, and this is like this is sort of the what Ed Harris's character or young and or old William is sort of curious about. I think is like what love remains. If at one point Dolores felt love for him, what love remains? Uh, in that programming. That's what I think is like an interesting question here. Um, And we talked, you know, we we had that listener write in and ask us about like why we talked about Maeve and her daughter the way that we did and how that related to her own experiences as sort of um, a part of a family, an adopted family. And I, I, I think it is telling us something really powerful about love and uh, bursting through various definitions even robotic parts. But anyway, I, I just I think it's it's really interesting. And, and I think we had said to that that listener who wrote in like, well, the reason we don't talk about Dolores and her father that way is the show hasn't like bothered to make that connection important. And then, oh, lo and behold, episode three, uh, that yeah. connection, you know, they're drawing a parallel between um, Maeve and her daughter, right. I think. Right. And Dolores and her father. So, yeah. 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 Uh, and some of H- Evan Rachel Wood's best work this season so far in this scene, as far as I'm concerned. I absolutely agree. And and the thing we should mention about King Lear, uh, you know, that any drama major or English major can tell you is that um, or anyone who likes Shakespeare can tell you is that, you know, like King Lear is about an elderly, senile king and his three daughters. And that line, particularly, I'm bound on a wheel of fire, uh, is something he says to his daughter, his loyal, faithful daughter, Cordelia. So the fact that you have this, like, you know, Abernathy is glitching, but it's it's as close to senility as we might get, like, in a robot, right? And so you've got uh, this glitching father figure and his, like, tender, loyal daughter. And uh, you know, everything that Evan Rachel Wood is giving us in this scene, I think, is is really powerful. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, th- there are some questions about like what what is happening with Abernathy. Um, Bernard doesn't seem to understand, right? Like why? Like I-, I thought Bernard was in on the plan from last season, but he wasn't. Like essentially, they've dumped a whole ton of valuable information into Abernathy, right? Um, 
He all, was no Bernard was not in on the plan at all. Yeah, last season. so that was just Charlotte and Sizemore. All the DNA and the exploits and personal information, presumably of everyone who's ever been at the park, right, or something like that, right? Is that what we're speculating? Do you have any? I mean, that's theory? what I would. That's what I would presume. Last season, you know, she talked about thirty-five years of proprietary data or something like that. Charlotte yeah. did, and so I thought that was just like the coding and all of that. But with what we've learned in the lair, as you put it, this season, I think it does include all the footage and the DNA and all of that. I think it's all of that inside this glitching robot's head, and. um we we get this in nice interaction with Bernard and Dolores where um, Dolores is like, seems angry and disappointed that Bernard doesn't remember, like he doesn't remember anything about Arnold right. at all. And, and it's, it feel to, it felt to me like a nice reflection of all those Arnold and Dolores scenes we saw uh, where they're sitting in two chairs facing each other. You know what I mean? She sort of like sits yeah. down with him and stuff like that. So, um, and then she just like, she talks to him in this way that's, so seductive where she's talking about like, um, aren't we, aren't we something worth preserving? Aren't we something special and rare and worth preserving? You've never been outside the park. Have you? Out to that great world you speak of. I have. And the world out there is marked by survival. By a kind who refuses to die. And here we are. A kind that will never know death. And yet we're fighting to live. There is beauty in what we are. Shouldn't we too try to survive? It's once again this class of clash of ideologies, right? We got Dolores and Maeve's clashing ideologies last season, last episode, and I think we get Bernard and Dolores' clashing clashing ideologies here, um, or at least Bernard not sure what he believes yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it reminded me of uh, Blade Runner, honestly, um, mm. you know, and this idea of. Uh, us versus them and like there's be- there's beauty in what we are as she says and that th- there's something like uh, fighting to survive right that we are robots fighting to survive you know reminding me a lot of Blade Runner and, and the themes of that film so or those films I should say mm-hmm. uh, so uh, next sequence has the Dallas security actually laying siege to this place um, fairly effective scene from a from a technical perspective I think you know the huge explosion all the extras background artist i should say uh and in a shocking decision dolores seemingly lets all the like the the soldiers die right or were you shocked by that well let's read this email here from uh enrique uh who writes into decodingwestworld.gmail.com from peru have to admit um not much of a fan of Westworld, but listening to your discussions is always entertaining and enlightening regarding the show. I've enjoyed season two just fine so far, but I'm having more and more problems with the Dolores plotline and some of the mysteries of the series. On season one, I thought part of the theme and appeal of the series was its portrayal of a class of sentient beings uh, exploited for the amusement of regular and very rich, I guess, humans. And the idea of Dolores and Maeve rejecting their programming and going on their very own was very interesting. 
especially considering the increasing amount of tension towards minorities both in the U.S. and in other countries. However, the more Dolores is portrayed as some sort of terminator with no liberation agenda, with no regard to the lives of other robots, even if they're Confederate soldiers, and the way she makes Teddy do awful things makes me worry that maybe the show was not that interested in the theme of oppression and just wanted to do a cool story with Evan Rachel Wood being awesome as a killing machine. Uh, I feel very disappointed with that, since I hope the show would try to say something instead of just being mystery and crazy fan theories, which are fun but can be not enough for some of us. What do you think about those themes in the show and how they're portrayed through Dolores' Rebellion? John Robinson, your thoughts. I don't have any spoilers on this. Um, just my own gut instinct of storytelling tells me that um, Dolores is headed for a reckoning of her behavior. Mm. And so I don't think it's just like Terminator Dolores is going to be victorious and that's the message. You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. that something is going to pull her up short for what she's doing. Cause it feels like inherently wrong. So um, Annie in the chat room brought up the comparison to Magneto compared uh, Dolores to Magneto. So if you, if you think about the X-Men um, in the, in the idea of like mutants and I mean, Professor X, Charles Xavier and Magneto um, are Eric, Eric Lynch, right. Um, are two ideologies of like what we as the other how we should treat uh, the quote unquote normal humans. How should we crush them and be supreme or should we um, try to show them that we're not threatening and get along with them? And um, which is also obviously like, I, or I don't know, but obviously I think has like some MLK and Malcolm X sort of parallels, but um, this idea of Dolores as a Magneto of like, we are, we are superior. We are the superior race. So we deserve to survive, which is something that Arnold sort of talked to her about. Like Arnold kind of planted those seeds for her. And so I like that idea, but I don't think we're ever supposed to be rooting for a Magneto. So I don't think we're supposed to be rooting for Dolores on this path. I don't think. Yeah, you know, there's another comparison I wanted to bring up, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, and I'm using now as the opportunity to bring it up, which is uh, the opening scene of Alien Covenant. If you've seen that uh, movie, I sure right? have. Yeah, so in the opening scene, uh, basically, Mr. Leyland Waitani, or whatever his name is, he builds an android named David, played by Michael Fassbender. And in the course of that scene, uh, you know, Michael Fassbender's robot wakes up and starts playing piano and stuff. And he realizes in that scene that he will one day outlive and surpass his creator. Uh, and I th- thought it was a really kind of effective idea of, you know, knowing that you're going to surpass the thing that created you. Like that, that human humankind will one day build an AI or something that will be superior to itself in, in like pretty major aspects. Um, and we're seeing that idea come to life in, in this episode, I think with Dolores and that speech and talking about how like in many ways they're superior to humans, you know? Um, so, yeah. And I, I, um, I want to mention a, a thing that a couple people in the chat and also some emails that we got brought up, which is that, um, and I thought I had mentioned this on the podcast, but maybe I didn't underline it clearly enough. It's while I find the Terminator aspect of Dolores, um, not my favorite thing happening on the show. It is of course understandable that any single host in the park who has endured so much trauma and Dolores's was like, I think especially traumatic because her loop was especially traumatic because, uh, Ford, it seemed like for years was punishing her for what she did to Arnold. 
it's very understandable that that person would wake up and want just vengeance for mm-hmm. everything that happened to them. And so I don't want to ignore the idea of this is how one person, one survivor of trauma would deal with their trauma, of course. Like, and so I, I, you know, it's not, it's not like, it's not like her reaction is not understandable or not trackable with all the bad things that happened to her. Um, I just, I want, I like rooting for Dolores and it is hard occasionally this season to root for Dolores despite all the terrible things that happened to her. Maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe everyone else is like, I find it easy to root for Dolores. She should kill everyone given what happened to her. But that's just where well, I'm I mean, I from. think, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think like this is kind of a turning point here when she lets all the other robots die, you know, like it, it's what, what, like this woman has no, uh, moral compass anymore you know like it's not even like a let's liberate everyone it's it's i'm only looking out for myself at that point you know right yeah um and that seemed to to me to be her plan all along was to recruit these confederados who she like you know when it comes to respecting various hosts she doesn't respect the confederados recruiting them all uh not just as not just as like a loyal army like her friends who wear black kerchiefs on her their face but as just uh cannon fodder as yeah. collateral damage as as insulation between her and the delos qa that that the delos security that's coming for her because she found out how many hundreds of people would be coming for her and teddy last episode was like we have like 20 people though and she's like cool well let's get some uh human shields operation human shield confederado edition and mm. uh craddock's really super pissed about it but um you know this is this is Dolores I feel like Dolores's tactic all along Fair enough a couple other things to mention about this scene uh what happens to Abernathy I think uh Charlotte Charlotte Hale gets away with Abernathy in the in the vehicle right Yeah Yeah so I'm curious kind of like what the hell happened after this to, to cause Charlotte to lose Abernathy? She lost him again. Um, um, we also see Dolores take a couple bullets like in without flinching. Yeah. The same way. And it reminded me of the way that um, actually Ed, Ed Harris's uh, men in black character took bullets in the first episode. Like you, you see him get shot and he's just like, it's not affecting him. Mm. This is different, different technology, but it sort of felt like a parallel to me. And it loops back to that question you have that I think we need to constantly be asking ourselves this season is like, how does a host die? Yeah. And we don't have a perfect answer for that yet, I think. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, Dolores tells Teddy to go and execute all these dudes and Teddy can't do it. Right? That's the other thing that happened. Uh, That's a, that feels like a big deal to me because that look she gave Like I've been sort of wondering what uh, Terminator Dolores is doing with like you know a, a kindly dope like teddy and th- that seemed to me to be a test like she's like kill craddock and he's like i can't um and the look she gave him actually makes me very nervous for teddy mm. i mean not not just because we see him dead in the first episode <laughs> not, not just because we see him drowned in dead, but... <laughs> whether or not that actually is dead but like that you know she just like that look she gave him was just like oh you failed me which like minutes before she had been like you're all i have left teddy 
Um, and then she's like, mm, but you can't kill Craddock, so you're no good to me. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and then Ming, Ming Liu in the chat room, I just want to make sure that we all understand what Dolores is playing with. He says, like, uh, she uses the Confederados as bait to draw Q. Uh, Dolores uses the Confederados as bait to draw QA to the blast zone and maximize the kill. Effective strategy, questionable morals. So this is her plan was to, like, bait Delos to Fort Forlorn Hope and then blow them. Right. Like she, she wasn't just killing them for sport. Um, right, but if was, she, yeah, yeah, but if she had precious cargo like her dad, uh, I'm surprised she didn't watch the back door, which apparently she didn't do. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I guess we should mention that. I mean, you already mentioned that Bernard found all this code in Abernathy's head, um, and that that the interlocking hexagon symbol appeared again, but also that he was glitching so badly that when Delos came in to take Abernathy, he couldn't do anything to stop it. And it seemed like whatever downloading or cracking or whatever he was trying to do was interrupted by that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's like kind of the second time in two weeks that the show has introduced explicitly this big mystery in a way that it like, in my opinion is mildly corny. It's like, Oh my God, look what's in this tablet, you know, like, and then we don't find out like that. It's just kind of annoying, you know, like it, that we have to wait a week. I mean, it's effective because we're obviously going to watch the show, but I'm just like, you know, just, just tell us what, what's going on. Or last week, this weapon, you know, that we don't even know what it is yet. They, I don't even think they reference it this episode. Um, so I, I don't particularly enjoy cliffhangers that last for many episodes. Like, if you want to do a cliffhanger, just tell me the next episode or a couple mm. episodes. But uh, do you have any opinion on that? Mm. Doesn't yeah. You? Well, I think it, I guess it is tricky with Westworld because they're juggling so many different plot storylines that you can't hit every character every week. I think, and so that in that way you do get cliffhangers, uh, you know, sort of spaced out among multiple episodes in a way that can be irritating. But I think that's to prevent us from having an episode where we're like, we cut from William to back to Bernard to back to Charlotte, back to Maeve, back to Dolores, which would be so disorienting. Um, So I think that's, that's like a function of how they're trying to pace the season, but I hear you. Um, And then we get uh, Clementine dragging Bernard, as you mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, all right, Jenna, we are running a little long, so I'm going to like fast forward a little bit through the the final plot line we haven't discussed, which is the Maeve storyline. Sizemore, Hector, and Maeve, uh, they are still walking along. They get to this river, and then they are confronted by Ghost Nation. Uh, and Maeve has a flashback to when her daughter was uh, attacked. Her, her and her daughter were attacked, and, and like Ghost Nation was there. Um, but in, in back in the present, Ghost Nation only wants Sizemore. Uh, and Hector takes a stand. Maeve says, I need him. And so uh, Hector kind of tries to, like, fend them off a little bit, uh, firing some warning shots, and then they all uh, make a run for it. Uh, they barely, in the nick of time, get to an elevator and go underground, and then they kind of wander around there for a little bit. Um, and some more talk about, you know, what to what extent are Hector... And Maeve programmed that you know to what extent have Sizemore has Sizemore written into their code what they're doing right now you know he's quoting stuff like in a fairly effective scene he quotes something that Hector is in the process of saying which just shows like this line between independence and free thought versus uh, 
preordained programming is very thin indeed. I thought that was pretty effective. Yeah, and um, someone in, in the chat brought up earlier like that we need to add this as a data point to like what does love mean yeah. for these robots. If like if Dolores and Maeve are holding on to this like love that they were programmed sort of to have for their father and their daughters respectively, like what does it mean for Hector and Maeve to transcend their programming to sort of form this love that they're not supposed to be sharing? You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Uh, and then, you know, so, like some commotion happens, and then Armistice shows up again. Uh, and as Hector's great entrance, she has a dragon, <laughs> as Hector yeah. puts it, uh, aka a flamethrower. And then they all kind of run away, and they find uh, Felix and Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Uh, they remove this hand grenade that's under Sylvester's chin, and they kind of. Uh, escape to what we later learn is kind of another park entirely. Uh, now, before we get to that last bit, uh, Armistice, I mean, the last we saw of her, she was being descended upon by uh, Delos security, and her arm was trapped in a door. So, no, last time we saw her, because there was a post-credit stinger at the end of season one oh, with Armistice. Okay. Yeah, okay. So last time we saw her, like, she had, uh, no one was actively attacking her and she had sort of severed her arm Hmm. so she she had like she had one arm uh and had survived that encounter was the post-credit stinger of season one of westworld so in the in the intervening times it looks like she's gotten sylvester and felix to make her a robot arm yeah uh as opposed i mean robot arm is a silly thing to say on a robot but like it was more robotic than the other she calls it an arm (laughs) yep Sure, sure. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And it, I think the like the setup with Sylvester with the uh, hand grenade under his chin was like, that's how she got him to stop talking. Mm-hmm. She put a hand grenade under his chin and pulled a pin or like, you know, and was just sort of like, hold this here and shut up, basically. Uh, and so she put the pin back in to sort of. Um... Anyway, that's my interpretation is that she's rounded up Felix and Sylvester and has them sort of like tied up and. And that sort of stuff. And so we got the whole band back together again. Yeah. Uh, we should mention a couple more things, like the revelation that Sizemore says that uh, Hector is the idealized version of himself that he's created, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. That's a really fun thing if you want to go back and watch season one and like watch all the Hector stuff and be like, oh, this is what like Sizemore thinks he sh- wishes he were. And that that must be kind of, kind of interesting to encounter and be sort of on the run with an idealized version of yourself. And then is this where we want to talk about Ghost Nation or do you want to save that for Theory Corner? Let's save it for Theory Corner. I mean, All right. at, at the end of this episode, uh, they're talking about this thing called the Klondike narrative, right? So Sizemore indicates like, hey, this is like the Klondike narrative. It, it, he seems to imply that they're still in Westworld. Am I right about that? Or like is the Klondike narrative, do we think that's part of another park? It seemed to me like he was saying – we're in the Klondike narrative as part of Westworld. Right. He didn't know they were in another park. And this is the question about Lee because Maeve keeps getting like really grumpy with him. She's like, cause she says something else in the tunnel too, about like, like you work here and you know, fuck all about where we are. Yeah. And he's like, I just need to see a sign to get oriented. Yeah. And, um, and so the question is like, is Lee just a terrible guide because Ford has been terraforming in the park and all this sort of stuff like that? Or is he intentionally, occasionally leading them astray because that's in his best interest? Mm. So. Good question. I mean, where better and more safe to lead them than into Shogun World, where people will come attack you with swords? Uh, Sizemore finds a head, 
uh, that like is kind of in the samurai armor helmet thingy. And then uh, at the very end of the episode, a samurai comes running from Maeve, uh, smash cut to black, uh, end of episode, and we hear a flute version of the yes. theme song. Yes. Which is like, we should. Cool. Mo- we should mention that in Raj world, like not just the white stripes, but also we heard like classic Westworld music yeah. score played with like the the uh, East Asian uh, uh, instruments, and then here we get like yeah more um, like a Japanese sounding uh, wood wood wind instrument. It's very quiet, very subtle, and uh, pretty beautiful. So mm-hmm. that's the end of the episode, and I guess they've wandered into Shogun World intentionally or unintentionally, and we're going to learn more about that next episode, I assume. Uh, so, time for Theory Corner, Joanna. Uh, and a bunch of theories have popped up. We're going to talk about them now. <laughs> uh, so, what, what are some of your favorite theories and, and how, how they reflect on the show? So, we already talked about, like, Della Security knows Bernard is a host theory. That yeah. one, I feel, is, like, a little shaky, but that's that's one, pl- uh, you know, uh, data point to put out there. Uh, the Ghost Nation theory is sort of the most interesting one. Something we should note is that... Um, it's you know everyone has been wondering how it is that Stubbs, when last we saw him, was surrounded by Ghost Nation uh, in at the end of season one. How is it that Stubbs is alive and well on the beach uh, in season two? What happened in those intervening two weeks? Um, did Ghost Nation just let him go? Uh, similarly, we see that Ghost Nation is just interested in Lee Sizemore, like the only human in a trio of people is is like who Ghost Nation is interested in. Um, and then I guess the third data point we have is just like grace encountering ghost nation on the shore we don't really know like what's going to come of that um but a theory that's cropped up is that perhaps ghost nation exists in the park whether pre-rebellion or post um to protect the humans um i don't fully the only reason i don't fully love this theory is that i think it's slightly problematic um if the native characters are there just to make sure that the humans are okay. Um, but if there's some other way to get there via like some sort of enlightenment, like, I don't know, as I mentioned before, professor X attitude towards robot human relations, uh, then, then maybe that's fine. But, uh, this idea that ghost nation has a, a function to serve and it has to do with like, actually, even though they, when they show up, they seem threatening, like actually caring for and protecting the humans who are in the park. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know yeah. that that's any less problematic than there are these like ominous villains that show up to kill people. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I suspect it may be more complicated than either of those explanations. Absolutely. So. But, but like something to watch in terms of ghost nation there and like, what are they there for? And like, I, I do feel like that no matter what, we're going to get more nuance on Ghost Nation this season. But that's something that I've talked about since the beginning because of like some of the casting. Um, something we got a flash of in this episode is that when Maeve had her little like traumatic flashback when she encounters Ghost Nation in the river, she flashed back to something like we we kind of saw in season one, which is like her homestead being attacked. Uh, by by Ghost Nation, uh, they they put new footage in there of um, like Zon McLaren's uh, character. He's in full makeup, so it might be like sort of hard to pick him out. But he's in that flashback, and he certainly wasn't in season one. Um, another question to ask yourself is like, if Maeve lived in a family friendly section of the park, which allegedly she did in the homestead. Then what is Ghost Nation doing, like, attacking that homestead and scalping Maeve? Um, 
we know that the man in black attacked her and killed her daughter and killed her. But what is this ghost nation attack about? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah. So, so just like they, they're framed in the show to be really threatening and ominous, but like, I would j- just question that. Right. Cause it feels a little too simplistic for what the show usually does. So keep your eye on ghost nation. Okay. Next theory. I love this theory. Love it. Bring it on. This one's from Jeff Hudson, and he emailed us. I'm going to call it the Young William Theory. So uh, we've we've questioned sort of like um, the idea of uploading human consciousness to a host body. That's something that we feel like has been hinted at this series, and maybe we'll see sort of play out at some point this season. Um. We've also been introduced to the theory, the idea of the door, which is a game that old William has to play. And it obviously is Ford trying to teach old William some kind of lesson about something. <laughs> we don't know what, right? But that's, that's what Ford is going to do is he's going to try to show William something that he feels like William needs to learn. So one theory that one idea that I had is that at the, at the other side of the door, William is going to encounter, um, a robot, uh, Ed Harris is going to encounter Ed Harris, uh, and it's going to be his consciousness uploaded to a robot body. And he has to make a choice. Like, do you want to continue to live as like a mm. frail, fragile human, or do you want to have immortality in your body? That was something that I was sort of noodling. And then Jeff wrote in with this like way better version of that, which is that on the other side of the door, it's not going to be a literal door probably, but on the other side of the door, Ed Harris's character, old William encounters, young William as played by Jimmy Simpson with his consciousness mm. uploaded, uh, whether that's his current consciousness or the younger innocent version of his consciousness uploaded, like before all of his trauma. And maybe the decision he'll have to make is, does he believe in, um, mortality? Like, does he want to live as a human and die or does he want to, or is he going to choose this immortality? And if in choosing that immortality of a younger version of himself, will a complication of that involve uh, a potential future forever with Dolores? Like you get to be young forever. You get to be your more innocent self and you get to have like your, your reunited with your robot girlfriend and you guys get to live forever young and beautiful running through the world or whatever. I love this idea. Um, I love the idea of people confronting people. I love the idea of really using Jimmy Simpson this season to full effect. Um, I also genuinely don't know if I know which choice old William would make in that scenario. So that's sort of, I know, I think the right choice is to choose mortality, not robot immortality, but I don't know what choice old William would make in that moment. But that's a theory that I love from Jeff Hudson, the young William theory slash the door. Last one (laughs) comes from Adriana. Oh, sorry. Did you have any thoughts? No, I don't have any thoughts. I think that's very well said and a really interesting theory. I, I have one theory, like it's kind of a continuation of the theory you brought up last week. So I do have one other thing I want to bring up, but why don't you go first with this uh, one from Adriana? Okay. Um, this might dovetail into what you're going to say. I don't know what you're going to say, but Adriana has this um, idea. She's she's one of the listeners who sent me like screen grabs and all this sort of stuff. But this season opened, as you might recall, with a conversation between wh- you know what maybe was Arnold and Dolores, where you know Arnold is asking Dolores some questions. Arnold is saying he had a dream. He was on a distant shore. 
And he was like, I'm, I'm worried about what you might become. And she goes, why would you ever be worried about me? Like, why would you ever be afraid of me or something like that? Um, and Evan Rachel Wood impression. Nice uh, <laughs> sorry. And then, it, so it seemed like a flashback to Arnold and Dolores, all those scenes we saw in season one. What Adriana proposes is that what if we are actually seeing Dolores in her mode where she can adapt all these different personas talking to a robotic version of Bernard that has had Arnold's consciousness uploaded into him because she mentions that Arnold, this Bernard Arnold, whatever this character played by Jeffrey Wright in that scene, that first scene is like consistently confused. He says stuff like, I'm sorry, Dolores, I was lost in thought. And she goes, we were just talking. And he says, what were we talking about? And she said, you were telling me about a dream. And he goes, yeah, I guess. And so as Adriana points out, it seems like Dolores is the one leading that conversation, not the Jeffrey Wright character. And so, and leading him to a point. And we already saw Dolores interacting with Bernard this episode and sort of trying to lead him to a point. So like, what if we were actually watching an episode and you and I had talked about the aspect ratio being Mm. weird. And so like, maybe that was a signal that we weren't watching what we thought we were watching. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's a future scene with Dolores play acting the innocent farmer's daughter Mm. in order to lead, um, Bernard with Arnold's consciousness or just Bernard like down a path towards something. So the idea is that the first scene we saw in this season is actually a Mm -hmm. flash forward. That's the theory, right? Right. Although we did get people telling us that in the subtitles, it does say that Arnold is speaking. I think that was a reference to the scene. uh, That email, I believe was a reference to the scene where um, Arnold and Dolores are talking in the house Hmm. on the mainland. So hmm. I don't. I will have to go back and watch the closed captioning for that scene. But yeah, that's kind of my least favorite theory <laughs> out of the ones you've mentioned. But uh, still, a, a potentially interesting one. That would be a big mind blown, you know, kind of situation if that did come true. Uh, I wanted to give more credence to a theory that you brought up last week, right? Um, and you basically said like the, the Bernard that we are seeing in the two weeks in the future timeline is not the same as the Bernard we're seeing shortly after the rebellion timeline, right? I'm very convinced of that. I just don't know who it is. I think that's very true. And I think like this episode really accentuated the idea that, you know, old Bernard had that scar on his temple. Like it, it made it extreme, like lots of close ups of his face and his skull and everything like that. So it would, it, it, let's put it this way. It feels really weird uh, for the show to uh, do that and draw attention to that if that's not going to pay off in some way, I would say. So I think that whatever Bernard we're seeing two weeks in the future, it's it's definitely something different. It's just it, – it's not super clear. A lot of people think it's Teddy that's in Bern- – like Teddy's mind egg in Bernard's body. I really don't think it's Teddy. I think it's either Dolores, as I mentioned – or we are seeing actually Arnold. This would be like so like Westworld if we spent so much of season one of being like, that's Bernard. And they're like, haha, JK, it's Arnold, guys. And then we're watching this and we're like, oh, it's Bernard now. We know what Bernard looks like. And they're like, ah, actually, it's Arnold again. Like, we fooled <laughs> you again. So like uh, a robotic Arnold uh, with an Arnold consciousness in his head, you know, because like Dolores seems like she really wants Arnold back. So if she has access to his consciousness, which I don't know how she would, but if she did, like, uh, and somehow got it in, like, his body, I don't know what happened to the scar, um, you know, but I think you're right, you're, well, I think you're right to agree with me <laughs> that, like, the scar really does differentiate these two 
figures. So. I submit that it actually is Arnold in reality and that it's a flash forward, you know, four billion years into the future when the the universe has imploded and reconstituted itself in a different way. Whoa. Just joking. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see who the Bernard of the future really is. Overall thoughts on the episode as we wrap up here, Jana? Um, let's see. It's not my favorite episode of the season. Um, though I did really love the Maeve and Sizemore, Sizemore stuff. I'm delighted to see Armistice again. And, you know, we'll see where we go from here. Pretty rough episode i would say like the the opening and closing i thought was very strong the raj world stuff despite its disturbing implications i thought was strong but uh felt a lot like treading water to me and the the siege scene was like technically very well executed but um not much here offered in the way of answers in my opinion so like good scene with dolores and abernathy good you know action scene with the siege but other than that I didn't find much to really uh, Wait, appreciate about this episode. Yeah, you're saying you didn't like the opening of the Raj? No, no, I did like it. I did. Like oh, okay. It. So, yeah. so like the opening closing was kind of cool, you know. But it was like very short period of time, and then there was this big siege, and then you have the Dolores interacting with her father. Um, so there's a few cool scenes in the episode, but it's just like it introduces more mysteries than it solves, um, or than yeah, you know. Yes yeah. and no. I mean, I think the introduction of the Raj is. Um, I mean, that we, we yeah. got our first non-Westworld world, and we know that there are other, like, humans out there in these other worlds. It sort of, like, blows the world open, you know what I mean, before yeah. presumably we go to Shogun World. I don't know if we will immediately, but, like, presumably that's coming. But I and, – and the Raj stuff just um, – if we see the Grace character again, which I imagine we will, then like that's an, that's a splashy character introduction we got, yeah. a really really good one, and um, yeah. But you're right, there are also a lot of questions like where's Clementine going with Bernard? What's going on? So yeah. we'll see. Find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. Email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Help share uh, your theories and help us figure out what the heck's going on this season. Uh, Jonah Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And you can listen to my other podcasts, including A Storm of Spoilers, Little Gold Men, and another Westworld podcast called Still Watching Colon Westworld. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen SKY. Or subscribe to me on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.